Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Political Science. Today, I'm speaking with Moises Naim about his book, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century, published by St. Martin's Press. Moises is a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Previously, he served as editor-in-chief of foreign policy as Venezuela's trade minister and as executive director of the World Bank. Moises, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you. It's really great to have you. Uh, you know, the, the first question I'd like to ask, instead of going straight into the book, is you've had so many different experiences in national politics, international finance, and in media. I'm just wondering how these experiences have shaped your studies of authoritarianism and contemporary politics. They are critical. Uh, and again, I wrote a book 10 years ago titled The End of Power, in which I examined the, the forces that were fragmenting and weakening power around the world. Now, 10 years later, I'm writing, I, I just published uh, one titled uh, The Revenge of Power, in which I study the forces and trends and conditions that are concentrating power. And the, my point is that it's not either or is that both trends uh, coexist. It, it all started when I was very young. I went, to, I became a cabinet member of the Venezuelan government when I was 36 years old. And um, it was, I was a member of a powerful economic cabinet. And I was always surprised of, uh, of the fact that people believe that uh, I had huge amount of power but I, in fact, I didn't. I, I lacked resources. I lacked uh, people. I lacked uh, political support and all that. I chalked it down as my inexperience. I was young and inexperienced, and I thought that was the reason. But then in talking to colleagues, I discovered that they had the same feeling, the lack of proportion between the responsibilities and the capabilities that they had around. Them. From the Venezuelan government, I went to work for the World Bank. And there I met uh, cabinet members and ministers from around the world. And I made a point of always uh, probing and asking about their power, how they use it, how they acquired, how they lost it. And uh, I discovered the pattern that there was uh, um, power had become easier to acquire, harder to use, easier to lose. And that was happening uh, worldwide. And that was the, the, the spark for the book, The End of Power. But 10 years later, what, ha- what has happened is that the, the trends and conditions that concentrate power, that limit uh, democracy, uh, have uh, become more acute. So, you know, power is one of these sort of amorphous words that means different things in different contexts. What, what, what do you sort of mean by, by power in this book? What, what is, you know, this type of political power or, you know- the, You're the, correct. The, yeah. that's- you are correct that, that power can mean different things at different people, but there is one uh, commonly accepted definition, and that is power is the ability of an individual or an organization to make others do or stop doing uh, something. 
Uh, and, uh, and that definition takes you a long way in understanding dynamics and interactions in the world uh, uh, all the time. So in this book, what you're, you're doing primarily is you're, you're profiling the rise of a, of a new breed of autocrat that you call a 3P autocrat. So what are you referring to here? At which particular individuals, obviously there's a handful, so you don't have to name them all. Uh, and, and what are the three Ps that you are trying to draw the reader's attention to? Yes, the three Ps are populism, polarization, and post-truth. Uh, and together they are a bag of tools that are being used by uh, autocrats at the, at this, in this century to acquire power and retain it and contain and uh, uh, react to the forces uh, that weaken their power, their grip on power. Uh, populism has always existed and is the notion of uh, stressing the, 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 the big difference between uh, corrupt elites and a noble people that is abused by those elites and therefore it always uh, uh, creates conditions for the emergence or, of, a, of a leader, uh, the populist leader that uh, divides the country even more, that, uh, that you know, becomes very uh, active in creating this, uh, this rift between uh, the corrupt elite, uh, uh, the abusive elite and the noble people. Uh, but um, he, he or she gets to power by saying that they're gonna fight that, but they very quickly, they become part of the problem and concentrate power and all that. And one way in which they do that, that is by using and relying on polarization, fragmenting ideas, uh, groups, uh, communities and so on, and uh, making it very hard to govern because uh, they, they, each, each of uh, these polarized entities uh, has very often, they have enough power to block others, but not enough power to impose their own view. In recent years, this has been amplified by the 3P, the post-truth, that relies in modern methods and technologies and social media to amplify and uh, uh, make uh, uh, polarization and populism even deeper and more important. So those are the three Ps. And what is interesting is that to see around the world different uh, people with leaders with very different backgrounds and ideologies resort to them in different ways. Uh, and, you know, Donald Trump and Nicolás Maduro in Venezuela, they cannot be more different. And yet uh, when you see their behavior and what they do, uh, it's quite similar. Uh, uh, Urban in Hungary uh, and uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu in Israel when he was in government again and they all use a three piece to acquire power and retain it are these you know sort of characters a lot of them are also you know self-proclaimed nationalists to what extent do you see nationalism as, as playing a role it's very important it has always existed but now it's even more so and it becomes part of the polarizing uh, forces. You use uh, uh, nationalism uh, to polarize society also and, and, and agitate and, and create uh, support for the regime. Something that you, you also talk about is the fact that, you know, authoritarian, a lot of these, these autocrats, you know, that they are dem initially at first, at least democratically elected. So there is some popularity to it. 
uh, and and you argue that the preeminent trigger able to activate authoritarian predispositions is the perception of threat. Uh, can you elaborate on what constitutes a, a threat and why this perception would predis predispose someone to authoritarianism? Well, we all uh, like to be protected. Uh, we all like to be shielded by bad things happening outside uh, our family, our workplace, uh, our city, our nation. And, and therefore, you end up having protectionist uh, um, instincts, uh, both on the part of the people that want to be protected by bad things and bad threats that are happening. Uh, and uh, uh, and, and uh, the the, the Polarization then is part of that. You identify different kinds of uh, uh, threats and, and, and divisions of society and use the other as an example of a threat. We, we are seeing that in the United States now, of course. Another phenomenon you discuss is, is anti-politics. Uh, what is anti-politics and what role does that play in this rise that you see? is a rejection of uh, politics as usual as uh, the politics of uh, insiders is a hope you know is a the idea that you know throw them away throw the rascals away the uh, traditional polit political parties politicians uh, institutions um, are, are not serving uh, the people that elect them and so is is there repudiation and rejection of uh, anything that had and any, anything and anyone that had to do with power before. And so just uh, kicking the table and trying to change everything. Um, and we, we see that uh, around the world, more and more people want, uh, uh, that don't want insiders, want outsiders, new people, new faces, new ideas, new ways, uh, new enemies, uh, new, new debates. And uh, sadly, however, very often the anti-politics only serves uh, to uh, propel to, uh, power, uh, people that uh, um, that are not equipped to really deal with the problems of the nation. You know, a, a question I, I had when when reading your book was, you know, as a I'm an American, you know, oftentimes Americans will tend to view politics through the lens of of America and seeing Donald Trump as, you know, the the kind of the, the autocrat par excellence, you know, to what extent do you see Donald Trump as as similar, like you mentioned before, you know, to some extent, very different than someone like Nicolas Maduro, but also very similar in tactics. You know, is Donald Trump just one of many, or did Trump, you know, Trump's election really help propel this sort of global widespread phenomenon? No, the trend preceded him, uh, but uh, surely he, uh, um, you know, was a very important propellant of what of, of these trends. Uh, uh, the what is very interesting is how every one of these three presidents or leaders have their specificities. Their countries, of course, have very spe specific uh, conditions and that's, that, that define it. But uh, beyond that, you look, uh, after you recognize the differences, you start looking at the similarities. And it's quite impressive as a result of the book I have been talking about this around the world. And it's very interesting to detect how people believe that this their country, that, that there are exceptional. That country suffered from the three Ps. And, and their country can be anywhere in Asia or in South America, in, in Africa, in Europe. Uh, people believe that that is happening only to them. By that, I mean the, you know, the 
their the ascent uh, um, and intensity of uh, populism, polarization, and post-truth, they believe that that, that uh, explosion of these three conditions uh, only happened to them, but it's a global, these are global trends, which doesn't mean that there are not specificities. What is very important is to know that uh, populism, for example, is often thought about as as an ideology, as a a set of prescriptions of how to combine markets and government and public policies of all kinds. Uh, And it's none of that, uh, because we we see populists uh, of the right and of the left, of the south uh, of the world and the north, the developed countries, the global south. Uh, So around the world, you see very different heads of state. Um, in very different circumstances and very different countries, but that uh, the trends, the three Ps are all there uh, and, and clearly so. You know, contributing to, to this rise, you also discussed the role of economic inequality and monopoly power. Uh, can you talk about, you know, what, what this is exactly and how it contributes to authoritarian uh, right, authoritarian power. It has a lot to do with uh, uh, the disappointment about how things are going. Um, people have ideas in their minds and expectations and hopes of, uh, of a better life for them and their families and children and, 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 and friends. And on um, the performance on the part of the government, on the part of the economies, to provide jobs, to provide income, to provide a better life has created deep frustrations. Uh, And those frustrations are of course exacerbated by the inequality that we have seen uh, uh, rising in recent years everywhere around the world. And so inequality is a major source of uh, frustration and, uh, and, and therefore a major uh, uh, factor defining where things are going. And, you know, what do you see that, you know, if this is something, if we battle inequality, if we battle monopoly power, then we will see the subsiding of authoritarians or are there other, you know, other issues that are more important to face down before addressing these bigger issues? What we're seeing is is two important things. First is the end uh, of uh, peaceful coexistence with inequality. So the tolerance for inequality has dwindled. And now there are reactions uh, uh, that try to uh, stop and contain uh, the the intensity of uh, and, and how acute inequality is, and uh, and fighting against uh, monopolies and uh, the the very the giant companies that concentrate uh, immense power is part of the story, and will be with us for a while. Um, uh, and and I think that there could be a, a change of direction but it's gonna take a while and it's going to imply many different uh, uh, clashes between social groups. You conclude the book by talking about five battles uh, and I can just quickly list them. You say the battle against the big lie, against criminalized governments, against autocracies that seek to undermine democracies, against political cartels that stifle competition and against illiberal narratives. Um, obviously, you know, you. You, you get into it much more in the book, but I was wondering if you could just give our listeners a little bit of an understanding of, of what these five battles are for, for you and why you think that they are so crucial that we fight them. Yeah, that's a very important question. And it starts by recognizing and being surprised by how little attention 
uh, it ha we have given to the decline of democracy around the world. Uh, in the past decade, democracy has suffered uh, important setbacks. Um, there is an organization uh, um, called Varieties of Democracy, which is associated with a German university that pu publishes uh, 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 studies, trends about democracy. And they found, uh, you know, what others have found. They're not the only ones. Uh, they, for example, write in their most recent report is that the level of democracy enjoyed by the average global citizen in 2021 is down to 1989 levels. The last 30 years of democratic advances are now eradicated. Dictatorships are on the rise and harbor 70% of the world population. That's 5.4 billion people. Liberal democracy that peaked in 2012 with 42 countries and are now down to the lowest levels in over 25 years. 34 nations are home to only 13% of the world population. The democratic decline is present in all continents in all kinds of countries. So you have to ask yourself, how could this happen in throughout a decade and so little discussion um, was part of it? Well, one of the characteristics of the three P uh, leaders is that uh, they uh, undermine democracy from within. They arrive to power sometimes by elections, and then immediately they uh, they eliminate term term limits. Uh, they they create conditions uh, for them to stay in power. They control they with tricks and appointments and uh, all kinds of. Uh, tactics, they control the media, they control the, the judiciary, the Supreme Court, the parliament, and so on. So how, how could this happen without uh, we noticing, without having a far more uh, robust conversation? And as I said, this is because uh, the, 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 the trend and the conditions in which this happened were very stealthy, were very opaque. So none of the prescription, none of the five uh, uh, things that we need to do will happen unless uh, we first don't diagnose the problem. No problem has ever been solved if it was not first identified. We need to identify the, the, the backslide on the attack, the backslide of democracy and the attacks on the checks and balances that define democracy as an urgent priority and an urgent uh, uh, challenge that needs to be uh, re responded by the democracies of the world and the liberal the liberals around the world and uh, only then it will be possible to deal with the five uh, uh, concrete uh, uh, prescriptions that i offer in the book you first need to have to develop and energize and motivate uh, people to, uh, to 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 take on the task of recovering democracy and uh, recovering the, the, you know, correcting for the backslide that we have witnessed in the last decade. And, you know, I, I, a question I also have on that point is, you know, obviously, for the most part, like governance is completely organized on the, you know, local and national level. Um, and, and your book is so internationally focused, you know, to what extent do you think this is a challenge that is going to be, you know, for example, are some countries going to, you know, uh, say no to authoritarianism and become more democratic others are going to stay authoritarian or is this something that you see as as needing to happen across a variety of countries for it to be successful 
Yeah, it's happening simultaneously, and it, it all depends on the nature of the country, the initial conditions, uh, uh, and the pre-existing conditions, and uh, the kind of leadership uh, that it has. But it's true that, uh, for example, we're looking at the illiberal coalitions around the world. Uh, these autocrats uh, are becoming very active in coordinating and working with others like them to have similar regimes. And uh, we have seen that, and uh, so it's very important to develop initiatives that uh, strengthen the collaboration and the working together of uh, the liberal democracies of the world. One final question that I'd like to ask is, is if there is anything since you published the book uh, that you have maybe changed your mind about or have felt that maybe, you know, something you said wasn't accurate or or any ways that you feel vindicated by by things that you wrote? Well, I, it's still in the middle. You know, the book is just out. Uh, the book has been very successful internationally. It's, it's one of the best sellers uh, in, in a bunch of countries. And the one surprise I have had is, uh, first, is how global this is beyond uh, the recognitions of their citizens. You know, people, exceptionalism, believing that this is just happening to you is more common than I had anticipated. I, I was, I supposed that uh, this was happening uh, to, to people and they know that they, they were part of a global trend. Well, not, not, not true. They believe that it's just happening to them. Yeah, that's that's very surprising. And I think, you know, I, on, on some level, it makes perfect sense, you know, because people, even people in their own countries, oftentimes won't even know what's going on in politics on a deep level. But, you know, I think that, you know, it's definitely very important for people to have this more international perspective. And I think that you do a really effective job of bringing together these different narratives that oftentimes are really difficult to see how they fit together. So, uh, Dr. Naim, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for Network. inviting me and thank you for the very interesting questions. It was, yeah, it was great. Thank you.